Hosea 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. Let's pray. Lord, today we're going to um, we're going to be talking about some things that are specific and historical, and um, they're truly amazing. Help us to have our eyes open to your just how faithful your promises and also your power, but more than anything, your love for us. I know, I know there's people in here, um, I'm one of them, that often is anxious, full of worry and wonder if you're really going to take care of me. I know people in our church, there's, um, when doors are closed and people are in their house, there's people scared about either physical conditions or even financial or um, just relationships. And we worry, we wonder, are you faithful? Are you going to take care of us? Will you take care of even me? Or is all of this just some nice-sounding religious talk? I pray today, after we open up your word, we'll see that it's not religious talk. It's, it's a promise, even if it does seem impossible. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. About uh, the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s, there was a man that came on the scene that, um, in a way, you could say shocked the world. He was Hungarian-American, and uh, he joined the Vaudeville Act, and then he went out on his own. And when he started taking out his act on his own, he would go to Europe and all across America. And this guy dazzled the world. You probably have even heard of him. Maybe not know much about him, but his name was Harry Handcuff Houdini. Harry Handcuff Houdini was an amazing guy. Actually, he was one of the very first escape artists. One of his gigs, he'd go from town to town, and he would challenge all the police authorities to handcuff him, chain him, throw him in prison. He would guarantee that he would escape. And sure enough, they couldn't hold him. He became so good at escaping, they would dangle him from skyscrapers with his legs all bonded up with chains and locks. He put on straight jackets and would jump off bridges while thousands of people would be gathered around. He'd be underneath the water and he'd come out gasping with air. But his most famous trick is this. It's called the, 
the milk case escape. So what he'd do is he'd take this big milk container and he'd put it in front of a big audience, whether he'd go to churches, sometimes he'd be at baseball, baseball stadiums, and he would step into that milk case and he'd have people pouring water in. And then he'd tell the audience, he'd say, now when I hold my breath and go wonder, I want you to see if you can hold your breath too. That's how he'd get them engaged. He was a great showman. Never reveal his secrets. So what he'd do, he'd go, okay, one, two, three. He'd hold his breath and go under. And when he'd go under, they'd put on the top and they'd click one, two, three, four locks. After about 30 seconds, most people in the crowd would go, but he'd be underneath. Nothing's happening. All of a sudden, about a minute and a half, a hand would poke through the middle, and he'd have a little wire, and he would go to the first lock and try to pick it. Click. But it'd be about three minutes. Click. But he's been in there about six minutes. His hand's moving around, still inside of that thing, the cap's still on. Click, the fourth lock. But it's about 10 minutes. Then finally, click, he'd get the fourth one. And then pop, the top would come off. The canister would fall to the ground. Water would pour out. He'd be on the ground and you'd think he's dead. But no, all of a sudden, he'd take a breath. He'd stand up and he'd go like that. And the crowds would go crazy. He did it. And his promotional materials, the question, what was it about Harry? Why did people love him so much? And he said, because he could make the impossible possible. I mean, he would stay submerged longer than anybody ever could hold their breath. He made the impossible possible. And I was thinking about that and relating it to what we're talking about in the book of Hosea. From a human level, the love that's found in the book of Hosea is impossible. It's impossible. God is going to make a promise. He's having a man by the name of Hosea make a promise to a wife that is consistently unfaithful. And then he stays married to her? Come on. But then he's going to go, you know what? This is just an example. This is just an example a lifelike metaphor for my love for the people of Israel. And we're going to talk about that. And if he can love, if Hosea can love Gomer and God can love Israel, can't he love me in the same way? Somebody that honestly, if you really knew me, why would anybody love me? Nobody, that's impossible. So that's what we're going to talk about today. He gives us a promise that he will un conditionally love you. Do you know what that word unconditional means? There's nothing you can do to have him not love you. Impossible. Because every love we're used to is conditional. You know, like, so you ask this question, (laughs) why choose to love Gomer? I mean, this story, chapter 1, I mean, verse 1 of chapter 3, here Hosea is told to bring her back again, though... It says, she is now at this point loved by another man. Oh, come on. Imagine the story. Hosea tells his mom, hey mom, I found the girl of my dreams. I found the girl of my dreams. 
well, who is it? Oh, it's, you know, the little girl down the street? Well, not a little girl, teenage girl down the street named Gomer. And Hosea's mom goes, yeah, I've seen her. She's really pretty, but I know that she's kind of a flirt. But I love her, mom. I love her. All right. I don't advise it. So Hosea marries Gomer. They get married. Everything's wonderful. They have a first baby. It's a boy. They name the boy Jezreel. Hosea's mom said, hey, bring, jo- bring Jezreel, you and Gomer, come on by. I'll bring Jezreel, but I, I don't think Gomer wants to come over. Well, why not? Well, he goes over, brings his baby boy over to his mom and dad's house, and his dad says to Hosea, Hosea, I work with some pretty tough dudes, and often they go visit the red light district, you know, where the brothels are, and they saw your wife there. You're married to a girl who's prostituting herself. And you can imagine Hosea's heart. Oh, so he goes and gets her, grabs her out of that brothel, brings her home, and she's like, what are you doing bringing me home? It's so boring living with you. And he looks at her and he notices that she's pregnant by another man. So he has her stay with him until she gives birth, and she gives birth to a baby girl, Lo Rumama, Ruhama, which means not my child, not loved. And um, after Gomer has the baby, she takes off again, leaving Hosea with two babies. Could you imagine that? Why would he take her back? But he does, and he has to go back to the red light district to take her back home, and she's pregnant again, this time with the baby boy, Loami. So now he's got two baby kids two boys and a girl, and his wife leaves again. Probably a pretty long time because the kids get a little bit older, so it might be four, five, six years maybe, until he's like, I, can you imagine his mom and dad saying, just let her go, will you? Just divorce her, get beat down. No, I promised her. I made a vow that I'm going to stay with her. That's crazy. She's going to kill your heart. He goes back, and she's living in a brothel, and she's all beat up, worn out piece of leather. She can barely move. And he says, will you come back home with me? Well, the guy who owns the brothel says, you got to buy her. She's mine. you got to buy her. So he pays whatever it is. The guy makes him pay a high, heavy cost, buys her and brings her home. And she can't believe he'd still love her. Say, I made a vow to you. I'll tell you what, I want you to get cleaned up. You're going to stay here with me. But you've got to purify yourself a little bit. Kind of an odd story. That's what it says right here. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. And then it says this, even as... The Lord loves the children of Israel. So why choose to love Gomer? Because it's a story about how God loves Israel. Well, why choose to love Israel? Because what we're going to find out in our study today, Israel is worse than Gomer. Like worse. And then ultimately, if we would be honest, we can really ask the same question. If we treated, if, I, if a man married a, a woman, And this woman treated her husband the way I treat God. I don't know 
how long that husband would want to stay married. Why? And ultimately, here's the answer. This is what we're going to find out. Because this book, more than any other book, shows how God's great love overcomes the impossible. In a way, in the same way, people were wowed by Harry Houdini because he could hold his breath longer than anybody else. God choosing to love Israel for the sole purpose to say nobody loves like him. Exactly. That's the point. So we're going to, we know Hosea's story. Do you know Israel's story? I mean, do you really know Israel's story? We're going to take some time looking at Israel's story because that's what this is all about. Like if you look in verse Middle of verse uh, 1, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, that means they're basically indulging in fertility rites, which are wicked. Wicked rites. And then so like in verse 3 through 5, he's using the illustration Hosea. So... Um, Hosea and Gomer, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be with you. So that's the story of Hosea and Gomer. But look, it's really the story of Israel. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell in many, the land many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the later days. So what we're going to talk about is Israel in the later days. Do you know much about it? I mean, if you, can, if you understand Israel, it's to show you just how faithful God is. And it's overwhelming how specifically faithful he is. So from, he loves Israel. So he picks one man, Abraham, out of Ur. If you want to research these on your own, Write that stuff down. But one man out of Ur calls him this wandering Armenian, is what they call him. Came from Ur. Didn't really, he came from idolatry. We learned that story in Genesis. One man came one nation. One nation, the Jews. This nation, God promised in Genesis, if you curse them, I'm going to curse you. If you bless them, I will bless you. And from this nation, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This one teeny little nation, this little red right here, isn't even the size of New Jersey. One nation, and they were promised one land from the Mediterranean all the way to Euphrates. You're going to live in this land. And the promise even goes to one future. Look at Psalm 132. This is the, I'm going to call this the, this is like, Houdini coming in town saying, I can break any bonds. No, you can't. I can hold my bread longer. Oh, come on. I can get out of a straitjacket jumping off a bridge. No, you can't. Listen to the promise God makes in Psalm 132, 13 through 18. Uh, for the Lord has chosen Zion, that is Jerusalem. Specifically, that's where the, the mount is in Jerusalem, where David set up his throne that's where, right around right now, today, where the Dome of the Rock in the old city is. Lord has chosen Zion. Why? He desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place. And then he puts a, a word in there. 
that describes the duration of this resting place. Forever. <laughs> this is the resting place forever. This is a promise he's giving. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. So David, a specific king coming out of the lineage of David. Some people even say this is going to be David reigning. Um, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed his enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him the crown will shine. The crown will shine. He'll rule forever on this city called Jerusalem forever. That's the promise. That's the future. All right. So from this one man and this one nation, they're going to live there forever and rule the nation from this tiny little land? Well, um, so he placed them, according to Ezekiel 5.5, 5, in the center of the world around all the other nations for the purpose to testify to his amazing faithfulness. That's why he did it. He says in Deuteronomy, I'm going to give you all of these laws. I'm going to give you these laws so all the nations of the world will watch you and say, wow, what other nation has God as their God? So Israel was put there in the center of the world for people to watch. God set them up so you will notice, historically speaking, is God faithful to his promises? And he gives through Moses some prophecy. He says, oh, you're going to go to Egypt for 430 years, very specifically, you're going to become slaves, and I'm going to deliver you out of the hand of Pharaoh. And guess what? They did. That's where the Red Sea was divided. And on the day of the Passover, it was 430 years to the day, it says in the book of Exodus, from the time that they became slaves. He says, but here's the problem. Well, not only are you going to deliver you, I'm going to bring you back to that promised land. That's that original red I showed you. And I'm going to build a dynasty there through David. And he did. David brought peace and then he gave his throne to Solomon where all the nations of the world would come. And Solomon's wealth was incredible. But the problem with Solomon is Solomon's heart started turning to the idols of his wives. And God warned him. And God warned him and said, if you do that, I'm going to take you out of the land and send you all the nations of the world. He made that promise. You can find it in Deuteronomy 28. And he says, and if you, go to all, if you go to all the other nations and you start serving their gods, I'm going to degrade you in front of all the nations. Make you an embarrassment. So if you are sent to, all, you know, all over Europe, Asia, Africa, and you serve their gods, I'm going to embarrass you. And then not only that, I'm going to turn your holy land into a desolation. Look at Leviticus 26. Sums it up. Go to Leviticus 26. This is a promise. We often don't like to think God gets really specific because we don't want to be seen as wild prophecy nuts. I just want you to read scripture a second. Leviticus 26. Twenty-seven to thirty-five. Verse twenty-seven. So he says, uh, "You will not listen to me." Basically, he's making a prophecy before any of this. Is right after Moses came off the mountain. He makes this amazing prophecy, and then he says, um, "You'll end up walking contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury." 
and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Why would he do this? It's the same way Hosea married Gomer. To show how God's love never stops. Listen to what he keeps saying. Really gets bad. Verse 29, you shall eat the flesh of your sons, you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Huh? Read Jeremiah and Lamentations. You'll understand what that's all about. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you. I'll lay your cities to waste and I'll make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aroma. So he's going to destroy utterly Israel if they wander from the path. Has this happened? Well, here's a story of desolation historically speaking. Just, I just want you to think through this real quickly. So 740, 539 B.C., they did not turn. Especially the northern kingdom was wicked. So Assyria came down and they took them as slaves. And Judah started rebelling, and then Babylon came and took them to Babylonia as slaves. So they were all brought into what's called captivity. You can read all about that through the minor prophets. 539 B.C., a remnant of people returned. That's what the book of really Ezra and Nehemiah are about. A small group, a remnant. People say about 10%. There's always in a group about 10% that just really believed this stuff and a remnant went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Second temple started being built. And then from 539 to 0, people started coming back a little bit and then the Messiah appeared. The anointed one. That's what Messiah means. Anointed one means the chosen king. He appeared in this city of Jerusalem. Actually, he's born in a town called Bethlehem. I don't know if you know that story. It's pretty important. He's born in Bethlehem. He's an incredible guy. You know what it says in Acts? This same Messiah, after he's born in Bethlehem, he went around doing good. Like he would make blind to be able to see and the deaf to hear, the lame would jump up. He went to this one funeral, touched the coffin, and the dead son jumped out. He's an amazing guy. He's a Messiah. Well, he was rejected by his people. He came in on what's called Palm Sunday. He's rejected by his people, and they crucified him. They killed him. This didn't, God didn't take too highly about this. In 70 AD, completely destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, taken away by Rome. Utterly obliterated. So from 70 AD to about 1945, Israel was scattered throughout the world. Like, they were hunted down. They were chased. They were ridiculed. In the 1800s, Russia would have pogroms, which means they would try to annihilate small groups of Jews, just destroy them. And then this guy, I don't know if you ever heard of this guy named Adolf, strange first name, Adolf from Germany, he had these things called the concentration camps where they killed over 9 million Jews. And at that time, the land was abandoned. I've got just some reports. Um, right after First World War, after First World War, the British government was given kind of oversight over the land of Israel, where that red was. And they put a search committee in there, and they said, the land is overwhelmingly desert. 
nomads are encroaching on the settled areas and farmers, they're stealing. Um, there's a lack of elementary facilities and equipment. Peasants are wallowing in poverty. There's a lot of ignorance and disease. Most people are saddled with debts. Interest rates are as high sometimes as 60% from the Muslim traders. And there's warlike nomads that are just raiding towns and villages. There's a neglect of soil. Most trees have been cut down, used for building. 1937, there is a report of the Palestine Royal Commission. It says the road leading from Gaza to the north is only a summer track suitable for transport by camels and carts. No orange groves, orchards, or vineyards to be seen. Not a single village in all this area was water used for irrigation. Houses are mostly mud. No windows were anywhere to be seen. The yields of crops are very poor. Sanitary conditions in the villages are horrible. Schools do not exist. The rate of infant mortality is very high. That's in southern Judah by Jaffa. Another report says we found the southern part of Israel is mostly inhabited by the Fellahin, who is traveling nomads who steal. They live in mud hovels. Uh, malaria is very prevalent. Large areas of the land are uncultivated and covered with weeds. There's no trees, no vegetables. And uh, so you could basically say, it's desolate. This is 1937. Desolate. So, Hosea 3 comes in and says, well, what's going to happen? Listen to what verse 4 says. We go back to Hosea. But God made a promise. God made a promise for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord and his goodness in later days. So he's saying they are actually going to be restored in the later days. So, so this desolation is not going to be desolation anymore. Come on. You mean to tell me Hosea will bring back Gomer? She's had two kids out of wedlock. She's living with another guy. Come on. Well, let me show you what. Um, have you ever heard of the Valley of Dry Bones? This is good for you guys who like Halloween. Go to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. And if you ever want to study this stuff, I'm telling you there's so much information on this. I'm giving you a quick overview. Ezekiel 37. This is a, I love these scary portions of Scripture. The valley of dry bones. That's how you should read it. Verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is Ezekiel. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. So he's in the valley. Some people think he's in the valley of Jezreel. Some people think he's in the valley of Marmageddon, but he's in some valley in Israel and the bones are dry, dead. He led me around among them and behold, there are very many of the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. So these, there's no life in them. They're dead. There's no chance. Um, and he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, only you know. So can these bones live? You know what he's probably thinking? No, they're dead. They're dry. Impossible. 
So, verse 5, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I'll cause breath to enter you, you shall live. I will, I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and shall live, and you shall know that I'm the Lord. So here's what Ezekiel 37, 1 to 28 is saying, is first of all, the bones are going to get up and they're going to start having flesh on there. Another way to say it is in verse 13 and 14, He's basically going to verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. I will bring you into the land of Israel. So the first thing that's going to happen is all of these people who've been scattered, their descendants are going to be brought back, like kind of getting flesh on them again. And then um, verse 6 says, and in flesh is going to come upon you and cover you with skin. I'm going to put breath in you and you shall live. And then so what's going to happen is no longer is it going to be bones and just sinew, but he's going to be alive. What does this mean? Verse 10, so I prophesied, he's commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. And in verse 22 and 23, I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountain of Israel, one king shall be king over them. They shall be no longer two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. I will save them from all their backsliding. What's going on? You know how they were desolate? God has promised he's going to bring them back. First, he's going to bring them back to the land. And secondly, he's going to then visit them with the Spirit of God. Go back to Hosea. It's very fascinating. I was in Moody Bible Institute, and I had this professor named Dr. Goldman. And he was a Jewish rabbi, and he got saved, went to, uh, studied Christianity, came and taught at Moody. So we had him in just for prophecy class. And we said, what to use the most important portion of Scripture to show when the end times are coming. He says, oh, it's easy. It's Hosea 3, 4, and 5. I said, we said, why? He said, well, if you notice what happens in verse 4, it says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. He said, there's two ways to take this. One way is they're going to just be scattered and they're not going to be religious Jews anymore. He says, I take this to be the children of Israel. They're going to, basically, they shall dwell Many days in Israel without king, they shall come into the, without prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. What's this mean? He believes with ephod, the, the, they'll be back, but they won't have the religious system. It'll be like a secular Israel. They'll be the, you know, the, the sinew, but not the spirit yet. So first they're going to come back to the nation. And they're going to dwell in the nation. And they're not going to have priesthood, really. No, the nation itself isn't going to be Jewish. It's just going to be secular. But they're going to come back. And he said, when you start seeing that happen, get ready. Huh. And then he believes, when their fullness comes back, he believes Zechariah 13 is going to take place, where the, they're going to be visited by God and the Spirit of God is going to come upon them, and they're going to look at the one that they've pierced, and they're going to repent. 
He says, when do you think that will happen? A lot of speculation with that. I'm not going to go into that. I just want to talk about Israel. I know Bob wants me to talk about that, but I'm not here for Let's talk about Israel. So, if we're to look at Ezekiel, they shall return. I believe Hosea is saying they shall return secular, without ephod. That means the priest would wear the 12 jewels of Israel they'd pray with. They won't. He's not going in the Holy of Holies with that yet, because there's no sacrifice, which there isn't. But they shall seek the Lord. And so, let's see if this is happening. Is there any history about this? Well, it's really fascinating. In 1878, there's a group of Jewish owners from Europe. They started investing money to buy back the land from the nomads, Islamic nomads. And they started buying land in Israel, 1878. In 1909, they first started kibbutz farming. I don't know if you know what kibbutz farming is, but it's collectivist farming where Jews from Europe would come, form societies to live together to farm the land, to start cleaning out the malaria-infested swamps to start setting up drip irrigation. 1948, Israel started to have, they had more than 100,000 people. They declared themselves a nation. At that time, the, the countries around them tried to drive them into the sea. And if you know anything about Israel's history, it didn't work. There's what's called the Seven-Day War in 1967, where... Egypt and some other countries attacked them, and actually they won more land. The Sinai Peninsula, the northern Golan Heights, some of the West Bank. It was crazy. If you don't believe this, study it. All I'm saying is they came back and they settled. And they're there today. How are they doing today? Well, this is, is this just a coincidence? In this verse, uh, let me get close to it. I'm sure you can't read that. Not too good. It says that he is going to take the desolate land, it will be cultivated. They will say, this is Isaiah 41 and Ezekiel 36. Um, they will say that the desert has become like the Garden of Eden. That's what they'll say. And I believe this is what they're going to say when the nation, people start coming back. So here's just some things. Do you know they're one of the top flower exporters in the world? Israel is today one of the top exporters of flowers to the world. Do you know that they innovated this potato that can dry, grow in dry desert lands? They're potato innovators. They have long sustainability even without water. Uh, they, they have their tomato designers. They have developed a shelf life on tomatoes that they can ship it all over the world and it will stay fresh. They are the number one per cow milk producers. Their, their cows produce more milk than any other cows in the world. If you don't believe me, check it out. It's bizarre. Do you know back in 1945, they decided to plant 250 million trees to reestablish forests. They said they are the one country that in the last 100 years is, is a net gainer of trees, where most countries are net loss. But they planted 250 million trees. Read up on that. It's true. They are citrus leaders in sales, exporters. Citrus is like grapefruit, oranges, lemons, that kind of stuff. Um, they have what's, they've developed computerized irrigation where all of their farms are required to have drip irrigation that's ruled by or systematized by computers. And they drip it like every 10 seconds, just drip. And even though it's a desert, 
They have constant sun and constant water to conserve the water but use it usefully, and they grow like crazy. They uh, have four massive desalinization plants. You know what that means? That means where you take ocean water, you take out the salt, and it becomes fresh water. They've got a massive one in Tel Aviv, which gives water to the whole city. In L.A. is trying to figure out how they do it. They're bringing some of their technology. And they're fruit growers. That's just some of the stuff that's going on. The embassy was changed to Jerusalem a little bit ago. I'm not here to give a political statement. All I'm telling you is, is that just a coincidence that the desert now is blooming? Is it, is it just a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that some of their aerial technology satellite systems is far advanced than ours? Is it a coincidence that really the Islamic countries don't want to attack them because they have a, they're a threat of, to preemptively strike? They're, it's interesting. So, if, I think in the same way that Hosea loves Gomer, the same way that God loves Israel and hasn't given up on them, even though they were scattered because they were idolaters, if he can fulfill these impossible promises, then no promise he ever gives you is impossible. There's two stories as I was thinking through this that shocked me, that, that I was kind of stopped on as I was thinking through this. One is in the Old Testament. After Israel was rescued by Egypt, the Red Sea's parted. They walked through the Red Sea. The uh, Egyptian soldiers are flooded by the Red Sea. They're hungry, so they say, we need something to eat in this desert. God sends them manna. So every day they wake up, they eat bread, and it's really good. It tastes like honey. And they're like, God, we just want some meat. Can you send us some meat? So he sends quail out of the sky. So they got bread and meat. And then there's the big part where they go to Moses and they start whining. They start yelling at him. They're like, we have no water. And Moses gets mad. Why did Moses get mad? Because he did so many impossible things up to that point. Don't you think he can get him some water too? If he's done impossible things for you, why are you worried about today and tomorrow? Or you take the New Testament. New Testament stories where the disciples are in the boat in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sleeping. A storm comes in. And they're yelling, wake up! And Jesus stands up and tells the waters to shut up. And they, whoosh. But he looks back at the disciples. He goes, where's your faith? But my question is, what were they supposed to do? I think, I think what they should have done, I think what the Old Testament Jews should have done, and I think what they, the disciples should have done is just sit by Jesus and wait. If he's going down, I guess I'm going down too. Instead of whining and complaining. But even in our whining and complaining, he still fixed the answer. He's still amazing. But I think these two stories are to point out the fact if he can fill the impossible, won't he fulfill the impossible tomorrow too? Can he?
Because I think you want to know that every day. I know it because as a pastor, I get prayer requests that sometimes I can't handle. Sometimes, every time. How is he going to rescue these people? Then they, I see him show up and everything's okay. Like, how did you do that? If he can do the impossible. Yeah, but you don't know me. You don't know how unfaithful I am. You don't know how I sin all the time. The whole point of this is if he's promised to love you, he will love you. But it costs a price. For the impossible to happen, he had to buy her. If we go back to Hosea 3, so verse 2, verse 2, it says, So I bought her, so to get her back, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a latex of barley. So for the impossible to be fulfilled, he has to pay some expense. Some people question, why would he pay a bride price? And some scholars are like, this isn't a bride price. This is a brothel price. To buy her back from the guy who owns her. From the rotten guy who now has possessed her. He has to buy her. And actually they say, it's funny, some scholars are saying, this is a pretty hefty price to buy back a prostitute. One guy wrote, no one would pay that price to buy back a ruined woman. It's far too steep. But not for God. He'll pay any price to buy back the one he loves. Some of you feel like you are worthless. Worthless. You don't know what I've done. How could God love me? And so what you do is you end up you end up in a sense being caught by masters that will kill you. It could be sin, addictions. And you're in the middle of that and you're like God wouldn't want me. No one would pay the buyback a ruined man. The money's far too steep, but not for God. Your price is a cross. He died for you on the cross. He shed his blood for you on the cross to buy you back out of prostitution or out of faith, faithlessness, out of a life of debauchery, of sin, of just wickedness. He bought you. Oh, I don't know if he loves me. In the same way, Hosea loved Gomer and God loves Israel. His love does not stop, even for you. For me, some of you guys have to wrestle with this because we tend to uh, think salvation. I think America has sold salvation in the wrong way. I think we sold salvation in the sense that God's mad. And if you don't get saved, he's going to pound you. No, 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 it's it's. God wants you so badly, he pounded his son for you. 
That's incredible. And so the end of this says, in Hosea 3, Afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God. They will devote themselves, give themselves wholly to Him. Because He paid the price. Not only will they devote themselves to the Lord their God, they will devote themselves to David's descendant, their king. Who is David's descendant? His name's Jesus. The son of Jesse. And in the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and his goodness. I think that's why we worship, to tremble in awe of God and his goodness. Do you tremble anymore? Do you tremble anymore?